Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. I really can't stay. Baby, it's cold outside. I've got to go away. Baby, it's cold outside. This evening has been hoping that you drop so in. very nice. I'll hold your hands. They're just like ice. My mother will start to worry. Beautiful, what's your My hurry? My father will be pacing the floor. Listen to the fireplace so roar. So really, I'd better scurry. Beautiful, please don't well, hurry. Well, maybe just a half a drink more. Put some records on while I fall. The neighbors might But maybe it's bad out there. Say, what's in this no drink? Caps to be had out there. I wish I knew how. Right. Eyes are like stars to right break now. The spell. I'll take your hat. Your hair looks swell. I ought to say no, no, no. Mind sir. if I move in closer. At least I'm gonna say that I try. What's the sense of hurting my pride? I really can't. Oh, stay. baby, don't hold out, baby. Oh, it's cold outside. All right, that is the song. Of course, baby, it's cold outside. Um, a precursor to the wrath of Khan, because that is in fact Ricardo Montalban singing that song. Uh, uh, with Esther Williams in a 1948 movie. Uh, I think it's 1948. It's called Neptune's Daughter. So, um, first of all, let me tell you that if you're listening at 1 o'clock on Friday afternoon, you're about to hear a really terrific show, but you're not going to hear a live show the way we usually do it because we're actually doing this at night at 8 p.m. on Thursday night when we typically rerun a show. Uh, and part of that is because we just wanted... I mean, people feel different at night. Our, our panelists feel different at night, so it's interesting to talk to them at night. Um, first of all, let me tell you who the panelists are, then I'll tell you why we're playing that song. You might have guessed, but maybe not. Uh, Rebecca Castellani is entertainment director at Bridge Street Live uh, in Collinsville, Connecticut, where they rarely perform this show, but they, uh, this song, but they perform lots of other uh, tremendous music. Uh, James Hanley is co-founder of Cine Studio at Trinity College, which is not planning to show Neptune's Daughter anytime soon, but I wouldn't put it past them ultimately. Uh, Irene Papoulis is uh, teaching, she teaches writing at Trinity College. I don't know how to connect her exactly to that song, except that we're going to be talking about it, uh, obviously. Well, let me come back to it in a second. Let me tell you what else will happen uh, on the nose today. Uh, in the second segment of the show, we will be talking uh, about three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Those are not actual billboards. That's the name of a movie. Um, it's a uh, movie created uh, by the Irish playwright and now um, uh, film auteur uh, Martin McDonough. Uh, it has a tremendous cast led by Francis McDormand. Uh, we'll tell you more about it then. Um, prior to that, we'll sneak in a little bit of a conversation uh, about the royal engagement. Maybe it's just the kind of diversion that we need from so many other things, although you could say that about the royal family in general, or you could say that the royal family is a big part of the problem. Uh, we'll find out how the panel feels. But So the reason that we began with this song is because it's a song that people – first of all, it might be the most duetted song – uh, not that that's a word, uh, in American popular music. I mean, there are so, so, it's, it's almost, it would be hard, easier to come up with a list of significant singers who haven't teamed up with somebody else to do that song. Um, but it's become, with each passing year, more problematic. And if you're from a family like the one that um, I married into, uh, where people sing around the piano, at a certain point, your college age or older nieces turn to you and say, we're not singing that song anymore. Um, and we can talk about why that is. Um, and so we, we, 
at the beginning of the week when we assembled this whole panel and had this idea, we were kind of saying, yeah, so – and that would be kind of an interesting thing to talk about in connection with all of the stuff that's gone on. Now, we had no idea how much other stuff was going to go on subsequently. I mean, we didn't know about Matt Lauer. We didn't know about Garrison Keillor. We didn't know about a whole series of maybe uh, lesser stories. We knew about all – we knew about Al Franken and Louis C.K. and lots of other stuff. But um, – so it's all gotten even more complicated. But I think it still might be fun to talk about the song itself or to begin with the song and we can veer easily off onto these other topics. Although – so Irene, what, what I've always said is – you know, that it was a very different song in 1948. Uh, as I told you guys in emails, it's actually a song Frank Lesser and his wife, uh, before it was ever recorded, for years, they just performed it at parties for their friends. And it was this kind of fun little song that they would do. Uh, and then they sold it to the movies and it became this thing. But, you know, I'm sure it meant something else in 1948 um, that it was a kind of uh, flirting. Or maybe it didn't. Maybe it was every bit as sinister as it sounds now. But certainly after some of the events of recent years, particularly I would say, well, I, I should let you talk about it. I don't well, know. How does this sound? I mean, yeah. I don't think it sounds sinister at all to okay. me. Okay. I mean, I think it's delightful and I and I still do and I would, I would fight to defend it because I think um, – and I think in a way that's part of the problem is that people don't flirt and seduce each other these mm -hmm. days. And so – they, you know, it's sort of you have to the only way to sort of get someone involved with you is to bully them into it, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but that's not that's not what the song is about at all. As far as I'm concerned, there's a big difference between exposing yourself and saying, baby, it's cold outside. Exactly. <laughs> it's a exactly. bit of a line there. And also <laughs> you're paying attention to her. You know, you're yeah. not just saying, baby, it's cold outside to some random person. You know, you're sort of like it's it, to me that the whole song is about creating that atmosphere. Boy, I really hadn't thought about it that way, that if people were more like the people in that song, they would be less like Harvey Weinstein. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. So, that's and, a, that's and an interesting It's a low point. bar. <laughs> I think, James, you, you and I may come out on a I, – I sort of felt that after Cos, – post-Cosby, hey, what's in this drink? The line, hey, what's in this drink? I mean, that – you know, I actually sort of grant Irene and Rebecca's point about everything else in that song, maybe – but, hey, what's in that – that, you know, in the era of roofies somehow or other, it just clangs <laughs> against the ear in a different way. I think so. I, I think that's true. But I, I think of that song as being a, a very sort of interior song uh, between people who actually are close already. And it's sort of like actually not what it seems to be in that context. It, it's actually something that – it's a shared intimacy kind of thing. And then when you bring it out into – being a popular song that everybody sings, then it starts to take on other meanings. And of course, in in more modern times, it's certainly true that you think about these things differently. I mean, you think about how, um, you know, it, it, I mean, the the quintessence of this song is that it's actually not about power. It's about actual, it's a kind of interior conversation, which is, I agree, is kind of charming. Um, but so much of what we've been dealing with recently that we think about words meaning things differently is really about power and about the the um, assumption of power, you know, and the, the, the assumption that powerful men can can take advantage of women basically because that's the power they have and that's part of the perks of the power. So you start to interpret words differently and there are so many films, lines in films that you can look at classic films and – you can interpret them so totally differently now, especially when you know that actually some of these relationships that are made fun of in films of 
earlier times that actually they did involve exploitation and, and, and mistreatment. Yeah, I mean, I, that's – so I think that's an interesting point that I think this song – I mean, even the, hey, what's in this drink? I don't think that Frank Lesser and his wife sang that with somebody saying, did you put some kind of drug in my <laughs> yeah. drink? They're saying, wow, I'm getting a little dizzy here. Yeah. And uh, right. that was almost kind of kind of a trope uh, at that time. There's, as James says, like, I don't know. I went back and tried to watch MASH, the original movie <laughs> MASH. That's a good example. It's yeah. a new, it, it is a truly misogynistic, brutal yeah. Yeah. Woman-hating movie, you know, and yeah. it, and it was then. I just didn't get it, you know, and right. some that's some of the struggle of decoding this stuff from the past, right? Okay, yeah, I don't remember the. I mean, uh, yeah, I can't remember the movie Mash that clearly, but well, I, I mean, believe you. you I could, take you, your word. For you it. could pick something else, you know. I mean, yeah. there are things that were done in the past that were chauvinistic and a really, you know, and and, and worse in, in in an unpleasant way. Um, and of course, well, the other thing that I don't know that I find myself struggling with, I'm sure. At least once, and probably more than once, because he could never stop singing on his show. That Garrison Keillor has done that song, you know, as a duet with some (laughs) visiting opera singer or something. Um, And it's, you know, I think it's, you know, James, you said it was, it's about power, but I think it's also about the the sort of delusion that because I have power, she's interested in me, or because I'm interested in her, she's interested in me, and that's kind of what I would imagine um, Garrison Keillor or Charlie Rose feeling. You know, it's sort of like, of course, because he even said that. You know, I I thought they were interested, and I kind of believe that he actually thought they were interested. You know, or maybe that's just a way of trying to. yeah, I, I mean, in some cases, maybe you could believe that. But when you hear details about, like, Matt Lauer with the button on his oh. desk to lock the door mm-hmm. and stuff like that, you know, this is like the NBC. Sex yeah, dungeon. I don't think I don't think I don't <laughs> think he thought they were interested. He he knew they weren't. It was yeah. But. I mean, I, the question is, what does interest mean? I mean, if if uh, if you're a famous person, it would seem to me if you're a person that people look up to and feel that you're a person of, you know, significance and and. Surely part of your responsibility there is to think that you you have a special responsibility not to take advantage of that. But that's exactly the core of what's happening is that that power, it's not like the power to destroy somebody's career, although that was obviously the case in in, in, in some of these instances. But it's, it's also a kind of arrogance, a kind of sense that, you know, okay, this is what it's really about. And it's not the fact that I'm a well-known male, you know, uh, a star or I'm a producer or something like that. And therefore, I have to be particularly careful about how I present myself. <laughs> well, it's the exact opposite. Well, it may be that way now, though. I think well, it may have sort of swung back in that other direction. But I get what he's saying, which is – and it's sort of a sad thing about – I mean, obviously, this is mainly an incredibly sad thing about women and what women have been suggested to or subjected to over the years. But it's sort of a sad thing about some of these men, too, because I think ultimately that's – like the song, Rebecca, is I think a song about two kind of attractive people who are hitting on each other a little bit and, you know, sort of she's probably kind of I, I, the song could be understood as kind of do this in such a way that I can say yes without really feeling like I'm going to have to do the walk of shame tomorrow or something like that. But yeah, 
But it's not – I mean these other things are about like unattractive guys. Right. I mean I personally – and I'm as sensitive as anyone could get about this stuff. I mean the slightest thing. I'm like, okay, fire all the men. Let's be done with it. Starts from scratch. That's fine. This song has never really given me that feeling simply because it does seem to me, at least the way it's always been sung and lyrically, that it's very consensual. There's a familiarity between the two of them that enables them to kind of have these playful jokes that might be in poor taste if you were, say, picking somebody up at a bar for the first time and you know putting your fingers over their drink and the suggestion of roofing them like that's not funny mm-hmm. but when you've been with someone for a while and they're joking hey what's in my drink that doesn't feel to me as ominous and sinister as you know some of the other things we've been hearing in the news recently because yeah. it depends on paying attention you know exactly. it's like you have to pay attention to really sing that song right or to live the spirit of that song you're you have to be paying attention to the other person it, it raises a question that people have been raising a lot and keeler has raised it uh, in some of his uh, in, in uh some of his writings and speeches in the past, too, which is I think a lot of us would say, well, you know, no, really, you can tell the difference between a courtship ritual, even a courtship ritual that maybe involves, you know, some of the things that you hear in this song and something that's more aggressive and abusive, um, that there really is a pretty easy, bright line that you can draw between the two. But in a way, I mean, I, I don't want to uh, misinterpret what you're saying. I mean, but in a way, you're sort of saying that there should be some room for these courtship rituals, which are not just these people almost kind of clinically working out. Yeah, right, exactly. But I, I also do think, I mean, I, you know, that a lot of men especially don't know how to pay attention and they and they make assumptions or they think they're in a courtship ritual that they're not and all that you know so i feel like one has to say that as well but mm-hmm. but but the problem isn't the song you know or the spirit of the song or the problem isn't the sort of give and take of like do you want to well i don't know sort of maybe no you know the problem is just just not it's no, bulldozing right to, through bulldoze, that process. Yes, exactly. I mean, not even acknowledging that process and just saying, this is what I want and I'm going to do what it takes to get that. That's yes. not what the spirit of the song is. The right. song it's is getting, a give and take. It's getting what you want. It's flirtation. I mean, and plain and simple. Whereas flirtation, I think, is it, it, it flirtation and the, the tone of this song, its actual writing seems to me to be familiarity and yeah. a sort of endorsement of yeah. the familiarity and a sort of a lightness to that. It doesn't feel so much like a new relationship to me. Exactly. Really. Feels... I mean, a new relationship, you you would certainly be suspicious of those yeah. words. And I don't think you would sing about them in such a lighthearted way if the suspicion yeah. behind them was valid I mean, right. and, and a real threat. I mean, I'm more disturbed by I saw Mama kissing Santa Claus. That has always been a weird <laughs> That's one. That's kind of creepy. I, I don't like that one. Yeah, I mean, but the, there's so many things about uh, about courtship. I mean, you can look at sort of you know French farce uh, mm. of, of uh, you know in in plays and see and sort of almost laugh at the courtship rituals and so on. But actually, there is something to the idea of courtship and not the idea of getting somebody, you know, like like laying out a line or, you know, uh, spiking their drink so that you get something, that there's actually something more to that. And I think there's a lot of people who, a lot of men who don't really know the levers of courship and, and or, or even patience for that or matter. Or they do know or and they, don't care and disregard they, them. Which no, is, right. We're going to have to switch, true, true. switch tracks a little bit yeah. uh, to a, a courtship that actually appears to have been conducted appropriately and has worked out, uh, as they say. Although I just do want to kind of um, lay down a marker right next to um, Rebecca's about I saw Mama kissing Santa Claus, <laughs> which my family or my kind of married into family 
insists on I mean I'm divorced now but we still get together and we still sing and and we do that song because Steve Metcalf likes playing it on the piano but it's a really weird creepy yeah. horrible song it's a horrible which I song. can't deal with at all um, <laughs> alright so um, James you are going to have to get us started off here so here's a courtship that did work out and, and maybe it's because these are such troubling times you know I mean everything just seems like every apple has a worm in it right now but I don't know when I was sort of looking at this whole thing and I think we also uh, here in America and probably a lot of people uh, in, in, in the UK kind of enjoy it when something kind of ruffles the royal family in just the right way. So here's Prince Harry. He has found an American divorcee. Gee, where have we heard that one before? <laughs> uh, she, in addition to that, has one parent who is uh, African-American, uh, which is a little something that the royal family hasn't had to deal with in the past. But they seem to have quite a charming relationship. I don't know. Are, is it okay for us to just sort of say, wow, this, is, this might be a fun thing to pay attention to instead of all the things that are really making us miserable? Well, I sort of felt that way. And I especially felt that way when I heard her talk and, you know, when, in interviews. She seems to really have a sense of understanding about herself and her place in the world. And, and she doesn't seem at all ruffled by being with a royal and he seems to be kind of relieved that he doesn't have to play that role, yes. which is kind of interesting because, I mean, uh, his mother was uh, sort of like, you know, this this total change for the British royal family. And um, there were a lot of people in England. I remember reading things about how, you know, they, they were so critical of her mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, they were nasty to her mother and put her behind a pillar in the church, you know, so that nobody could see her and stuff like that. And they were very... There was a lot of viciousness there, um, and I think there still is in the British royal family. But at the same time, I think that they are looking for sort of kind of a simpler thing in a way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of interesting that those two really – they really seem to be in love and actually talking about themselves. They're, they're kind of unpretentious. Which you know, given the you know the monster egos, and I mean monster, mm -hmm. uh, that we're surrounded with now, it is kind of refreshing. Um, it, it it's also for England, it's probably a really welcome distraction because not only a lot of bad things happening in England, just. I mean, there's a whole catalog of things, but the whole idea of Brexit and stuff like that, the economic collapse that's beginning to happen and things like that, that this can represent something. OK, well, this is something we can do. I also I think I can do what we call uh, on the news a Papulian through line because I think Papoulis who's here tonight um, is very good at sort of finding connections in things. And I think the Papulian through line here uh, between these two topics is sort of what I would call keeping up appearances so that we we know when we like somebody, if we like Garrison Keillor, if we like Al Franken, if we like Louis C.K., if we like Matt Lauer, the questions are, well, I mean, he's probably not exactly the way he seems to be in these performative settings. Um, what's he really like? What's the difference? What do, who, who, what's he like when the mask comes off? And a lot of times we're finding out now we don't like what we see when the mask comes off. But we've been treated to kind of a performance all along. So the British royal family in some ways have been the kind of the ultimate performers. One reason they couldn't handle Wallace Simpson uh, is because she so clashed with their idea of who they – I mean she and Edward VIII were monsters anyway. We can set that aside for a second. But it was just like so wrong and Princess Diana was so wrong in certain ways. But then Prince Charles you know, married Camilla Parker Bowles and she you know, is divorced and then he's divorced. And I mean that facade got ripped off them too and they kind of have to live a little bit more like normal people now. And I, I sort of feel like that's a healthy thing. 
I don't know if it's an acceptable Papillion through Roy- Yeah, through I'm not sure about the th- can can. I'm Royals- so nervous. I want your approval on this. <laughs> can, can Royals ever live like like yeah. normal people? Absolutely not. <laughs> the, but- the, 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 the terrible dilemma they face really is that they are actually ordinary people, but they have all of this baggage that pays their pays their way, and so they they sort of act up. It's like a, it's sort of like an acting troupe in a way. Well, some would yeah. argue that Meghan Markle, in some ways, is signed on for more of this than any of the royal family has. I mean, Harry was born yeah. into this. Meghan Markle has forged her own career as a professional woman, yeah. as an actress, yeah. and in some ways, I think this is the first instance where the royal family needs her more than she needs them. Totally. I mean, she's a star in her own right. She was the highest Googled actress of last year. She's got her own money, whereas you're looking at, like, Camilla, Diana, even Kate. They all came from working-class backgrounds and suffered some sort of ridicule for that, whereas Meghan Markle seeks to rehabilitate the royal stuffy image to some extent. I mean, Harry, let us not forget, in what it was as late as 20... 11 was dressing as a Nazi for a party, so, you know, <laughs> they, quite let's not forget that. That so. might have been some bad judgment there. I, well, although I, I feel like I just, I, I don't know, James uh, and Irene may or may not back me up on this, Rebecca, but I feel like I, I heard that before about Diana. You know, there were an awful lot of people who said the royal family needs somebody like this. Mm-hmm. But you not know? at first. That came well, later I, on, I think. I, th- I, I, w- I remember that wedding very well, yeah. and I remember the reactions. Now, there was lots of people, some of them were named Elizabeth, who said she's exactly not what we don't need. But there were a lot of people in Britain who said who were very, I don't know, I, I don't think the royal family was particularly enchanting at that moment. I mean, people were tired of them. They were, they cost a lot of money. They have a lot of money. But that was the beginning they, of their celebrity, really, was Diana. Was She was yeah, the one that I, really was, was in the tabloids. the beginning of a different kind yeah, of celebrity yeah. for them. Well, I think that they had advisors telling them, look, shut up and, and, yeah. and let this happen because you really need this because otherwise they're going to take your money away. Yep. Well, I think they're going to be kind of challenged. Into, I mean, I, um, something about Megan, uh, a quote from Megan was, I was born and raised in Los Angeles, a California girl who lives by the ethos that most things can be cured with yoga, the beach, or a few avocados. <laughs> oh, <laughs> like, no. What is she, you know, somebody like that, how is somebody like that going to be able to exist in this sort of world of ritualistic... You found a doozy, Irene. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Well, so, although, you know, first of all... That's just what they need. That means yeah. James is one-third of the way to being cured. Uh, <laughs> we just all happen to know he had an avocado for breakfast. But... Um, <laughs> But James, I feel like this is a bigger moment in a different way. So, I mean, you know, what has Britain just lived through? Well, it's lived through its own version of Trump. You know, uh, I mean, Brexit is different from Trump, but it's also not different in other ways. And a lot of uh, Brexit is about the discomfort uh, of Britain having to open its gates uh, and become more global and become more mixed. And Britain was doing that anyway. I mean, Britain was becoming a less strictly white nation steadily. Uh, But, I mean, the one place that you were just not going to see any change until a few days ago was the royal family. You know, this is a country that, I mean, you can speak to this far more intelligently than I can, but like a lot of countries, it struggles with the whole question of race. I think having a half African-American member of the royal family is gigantic. Oh, I think Mm -hmm. it is gigantic. But you also have to look at it against the background of all the uh, anger at Prince Philip for being Greek. Right. You know, the the British royal family is a mixture of so many sort of marriages of convenience and And they're Germans. Yes. Yeah, exactly. They're They're not even British. (laughs) So, you know, it's kind of like there's a lot of relativity here in terms of what it actually means. But what is really interesting in Britain is this uh, consciousness about race and 
uh, where race fits into the the. I mean, England is a place that partly. Be, I mean, they've had a, a right wing resurgence just like we have here. And there's lots of racists who feel yep. comfortable about being on the street and, and you know, like the, these horrible videos that Trump tweeted, retweeted. Uh, I mean, there's a, there's a very ugly side that's emerged just as we've had an ugly side emerge. And so I think that it's actually very significant that this is a situation where also another sort of angle, it, race has become an issue because of Meghan Markle, but also... In England, there's this very uh, subtle thing about race, too, about how light-skinned she is and mm. having good hair. Very true. In quotes. You know, that this is this is a really complicated thing in, in the relationship of Britain with its colonies, for example, and the whole idea, you know, that, that, uh, that lighter was better. And it, 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 it completely influences the former colonies of England still. And so there's a lot of sort of hidden significance that's probably going to come out um, and in, in some ugly ways, but I think also in some good ways because she seems, I mean, in spite of the quote you had, uh, I, I do think she's a, she's a person who can be articulate and she can, she can stand for herself and she can talk about these issues, and I think that'll be nothing but good. It would be so nice if something came out in a good way. Uh, let's just keep our fingers crossed. We're going to take a break right now. We've got a pretty complicated movie that we need to discuss with you, uh, so we want to have time to do that. And still breathing It's your look And we are back um, with me. Uh, when I say we, this is the nose. We're doing it on Thursday night. You might be hearing it on Friday. Um, with me is Rebecca Castellani, entertainment director at Bridge Street Live in Collinsville, Connecticut. James Hanley, co-founder of the wonderful Cine Studio in Trinity College uh, and the wonderful Irene Papoulis, who teaches wonderful writing at Trinity College. So we went to the movies uh, this week or perhaps last weekend to see a movie called Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Um, I'm, we're going to play a little clip. Um, let me just sort of set this up a bit. So the uh, the, the primary drama here is that uh, Frances McDormand plays a woman named Mildred whose um, teenage daughter has been brutally uh, raped and murdered um, months and months ago. Uh, she doesn't think the police have done anything about it. Her solution is to put up three billboards uh, calling attention to the fact that the police haven't done anything about it and naming specifically Chief Willoughby, uh, played by Woody Harrelson. So uh, you're going to hear those two characters uh, talk about her frustration with the police department's failure to catch anybody. I'd do anything to catch the guy who did it, Mrs. Hayes, but when the DNA don't match no one who's ever been arrested, and when the DNA don't match any other crime nationwide, and when there wasn't a single eyewitness from the time she left your house to the time we found her, well, right now, there ain't too much more we can do. Could pull blood from every man and boy in this town over the age of eight. There's civil rights laws prevents that, Mrs. Hayes. And what if he was just passing through town? Pull blood from every man in the country, then. And what if he was just passing through the country? If it was me, I'd start up a database. 
Every male baby what's born, stick him on it. And as soon as he'd done something wrong, cross-reference it, make 100% certain it was a correct match, then kill him. Yeah, well, there's definitely civil rights laws prevents that. I'm doing everything I can to track him down. I don't think those billboards is very fair. The time it took you to get out here whining like a bitch, Willoughby. Some other poor girl's probably out there being butchered right now. But I'm glad you got your priorities straight. I'll say that for you. All right, so uh, that's a, a little scene from the movie that has a lot of scenes in it, and a lot of things happen in this movie. Uh, there aren't long, placid sections in a movie like this one. I think I'm just sort of going to go around the panel first and just get your kind of baseline reactions to it. So, Irene Papoulos, what was this movie to you? Um, well, I hate to be... Uh, I thought I was going to love it, but I didn't love it as much as I thought I was going to love it. It was... Um, uh, the acting was so fantastic, so it's a, the experience of seeing it I thought was fantastic, but for me, it didn't add up to that much uh, in, for reasons I could say later. All right. How about you, James? I liked it a lot. Um, I agree about the acting. It was really good. Uh, Frances McDormand, I think, is... I, I could watch her in almost anything. She's really incredible, and she plays this part with such total conviction. Um, it's really uh, a, something to something to marvel at. Um, I do have a reservation. I'll get maybe more into detail with uh, One of the interesting things to me is um, uh, McDonough is a... I, I, he made a film that I love, which is in Bruges, which is a sort of yeah. totally off-the-wall comedy that I thought that was really funny and, and uh, it really engaged me. Um, I think that you go on very dangerous territory taking on something that is serious and then playing it for tragedy and comedy. You've got to be really good at it. And I think that Michael McDonough has a couple of issues in that area. But I loved the film. I liked it. I, I would recommend it. It's really worth seeing for the performances. And it also, most of the time, it's right on the mark. But there are a couple of areas, uh, particularly uh, dealing with race, for example, where I, I think that McDonough is kind of like, um, you know, these British directors or uh, the, the, from outside of the United States, directors who sometimes try to make these very American idiom comedies and they make some errors about, about understanding. I'm thinking of something like American Beauty, for example, which I felt was not a bad film, but I thought that it got the gay angle that was in it completely wrong in tone. And that was a sort of misunderstanding of culture in the United States. And I think there's something going on like that with, uh, with, with, with this film. Rebecca? No, I would definitely agree with my co-panelists. I, though I would go a step further and say I thought it was an excellent film because my feelings about it are so confused still. And I'm still thinking about it and trying to figure out where I really stand on it. And I think that is what made it such an impactful film. It definitely plays a very, very dark scenario for a lot of laughs, and I did laugh a lot, but while I was laughing, I kept kind of checking myself, saying, what is wrong with you that you are laughing at this right now? It kind of reminded me of the same tone and the tonal experience I felt watching uh, Beatrice at dinner, which mm -hmm. had another, you know, playing a very unfunny situation for laughs, and yet through that laughter, you kind of have to challenge the reasons why you're laughing, and I think that that was very effective in this film, but I would agree, especially with James's critique on its treatment of race, I think that it definitely left certain elements of that felt a little, you know, I don't know, I don't want to say it was 
it was mishandled, but it just felt like they kind of came up to that and then fell short of really making a statement that was at all, you know, impactful. One, one thing that I want to ask you, I e- emailed you about this earlier today. It's something that I've been thinking a lot about in connection with this film. Uh, when I got home from watching the movie, I actually sort of looked up its production schedule. I wanted to know exactly when it was shot. It was shot in May of 2016, which would have been at a time when really almost the first time when you could say a Donald Trump presidency mm. could 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 maybe happen in, in America. It was conceived of in 2015, which of course was sort of the uh, the first, you know, slow boil of this phenomenon that we're living with now. And I find myself thinking, wondering how much of this is a movie that is maybe the beginning of cinema's attempt to uh, you know, to come to grips with some of the things that we're dealing with right now. And there's, you know, I, I mean, they're talking about race here. There's, uh, without spoiling anything, we can say this police department has had some real problems in, de- in terms of dealing with race. There's an officer played by Sam Rockwell, who we find out from the very outset uh, has brutalized uh, black suspects. Although, as I think Rebecca's kind of getting at, there's a way in which, um, uh, th- there's a way in which that, isn't really talked about the way it ought to be talked about. And he gets yeah. a, re- a redemption arc that yeah. you know, no other character which, really... Which we don't want to say too much about, yeah. although I, I, I do want to deal with that eventually. But, I mean, look, this is Missouri, and it looks like it's the Ozarks. The Ozark counties in Missouri were 70 to 80% Trump voters. This is, in many ways, uh, a movie about people, who, some of whom's attitudes seem really kind of irredeemable. Uh, on the other hand... We're invited to believe that even the worst of them may contain the seeds of a redeemable human being. I, I don't know. React to that. Yeah. I mean, I actually, when you said that, I, that did help me with my understanding of the movie, actually, because I said, all right, if, if it's that sort of does make sense that the bleakness of it and the sort of sense of hope, uh, hopelessness of it makes sense in terms of this is what this is what this country is is. This is where this country is now. This is where these people are now, and it's sort of this irredeemable feeling of it. I mean, I would also go to the to the I you know like the to gender in the idea of her as you know I sort of felt like her desire for revenge didn't really it it didn't make sense to me, right? Um, you know, like the scene with the dentist, you know, but it, things like that. It just well, didn't. I I it, sorry. No, you. Or okay. either way. Yeah, no, I, I was just going to say that particular thing is, is sort of indicative of this is what I'm getting at about um, a filmmaker who is uh, like coming at it as a sort of dark comedy and seeking to make it a sort of phenomenally sort of like something that constantly is pulling at you from comedy and tragedy and making you feel that. The danger of that is a kind of glibness. And when you when you do something like uh, I don't want to again spoil the scene, but you 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 actually um, end up making the characters be outrageously sort of de- depicted in unrealistic ways because that serves the dark comedy side of things and makes you laugh. But then the question is, if you're going to do the, something like that, um, you 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 need to be going somewhere with it. That either you're serious about it or it's just a throwaway. And the problem with the, doing that when you're not sure which you're going is that you, you the audience gets confused then about is this serious or are, is it just a joke? And they definitely used the 
police brutality angle as a means of advancing the plot. That yeah, was our yeah. benchmark from the beginning is there's some bad cops in here. They're doing what all the other bad cops in the country are doing. This is familiar for you. Here's your touchstone. Yeah. But then to kind of leave that and, and move the story along without having any sort of resolution as to, well, you know, some of these cops are just really bad eggs and giving them this redemption doesn't really have anything to do with the racial yeah. underpinnings, to me, felt like you, you can't really use that as a device like that without following through on the ending of it. All right. right. So without spoiling anything, and I don't want to spoil anything, one of the interesting things that this movie does, and, and it either clangs against our consciousness or we really like it, depending, is one of the characters, uh, let me see, they, uh, our understanding of some of the characters wind up being tinctured by a series of letters that come out from, from one of the major characters. So we are treated to these letters and we, were, we are told things in these letters or things are asserted in these letters that don't even necessarily conform to our previous understanding of who these people were, especially one of the people. Um, yeah. And I, so I'm wondering how that, I mean, in a way, these, one of the, the, the letter that I think is, is one of the cruxes of the movie is a very powerfully redemptive statement sort of saying, you know, you need to find the love inside you, you know, and, and if you do, and it's there, and you're damaged, and, and I don't know, what did you make of that? Well, actually, I, I, I must say that I was very touched by that as a, in theory, you know, and I, and I thought it was, um, I, 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 so, so it's kind of funny that I'm the one that's saying I didn't like the movie as much, but because <laughs> that, I did find that extremely touching, even though, uh, the other part of me was saying, like, come on, you know, it doesn't work like that. You can't get a letter like that. And, but um, yeah, so I, 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 I think, I think it was kind of a beautiful idea. So that that's the thing. There were lots of beautiful ideas. I I would say in the movie. And by the way, Colin, did you say your original thought, do, reaction? Like when we went around, yeah. you didn't my, say my original reaction. I think I'm pretty close to Rebecca in the sense that I was really struggling with this. It's it's a kind of movie that I typically have some problems with. I mean, in the sense that um, Tarantino, whose movies I for the most part don't like, often uses violence as a kind of narration as opposed to pure violence. Uh, in other words, he uses it as just a way to advance story or, I don't know, to keep us involved. Or, uh, and there's a way, I mean, there's a lot that goes on in this movie. And that's very typical of McDonough. His plays are that way, too. I had a friend who was sitting in the front row of the lieutenant of Inishman and asked to be moved during an admission to the middle of the theater because she just couldn't watch. There's just like so many things happening. And yes, there are dentist drills being plunged into people's hands and there's firebombings and people being defenestrated. And there's like a lot going on in this movie. And I was, I thought it was, there was too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's very much the way it's like complaining about too much violence in the Tarantino movie. But it was effective in Bruges. I yeah. mean, that was that taken to such an extreme that yeah. it worked, whereas this right. wasn't taken either far enough or it needed to be pulled back a little bit and been a little less heavy-handed because it did get a little silly in some parts. And in Bruges wasn't really sort of trying to deal with actually serious issues exactly. either. Mm-hmm. It was the like The stakes a, were lower. Yeah, the stakes were lower, and it was just off-the-wall humor. Yep. And it did have it was it was almost sort of just poking fun at genre in a way, and it was funny. You could laugh at it. In this case, I think the comparison with Tarantino and violence, the the, the parallel there is a really interesting one, Colin, because I think um, you know when you use things like racism, over the top behavior. Uh, violence or, you know, you if you use it as a plot device, you'd better be very clear what you're doing with it because they're serious issues, really, that you can't 
it's very hard to make a real joke out of unless you know where you're taking it and actually coming to a place where, okay, you know, this person is actually being addressed as a character. And one of the interesting things in this case where it's being used as a device is that the acting is so good and the performances, the the whole atmosphere of the film is so good. Mm. Like, it's very hard to sort of criticize it on that basis. I mean, I'd really recommend that people see this film because it's really about the complexity of how people present stuff and uh, how easy it is to be misled, actually. Yeah, and actually, I think it's interesting because when you're you're talking about the the plot... um, Things that have that that it's playing with, or it's not it's not living up to. I sort of felt that way. What it was doing that with emotions too, because there were some very very intense emotions in the movie, and I felt like I didn't I didn't quite understand them as much as I wanted to, or I didn't it didn't I, I wasn't sure why what exactly the feeling was, or what. What exactly would, you know, but the acting was so good that you believe they were having the emotion completely, you know. But then when you think about it, you think, wait a second. I agree. Well, the the movie suffers a little bit from a kind of patness about certain things, too. I mean, uh, once again, I don't want to spoil anything, but it's the kind of movie where – uh, if somebody's about to walk out the door and somebody says, well, be careful about avalanches, you know, or don't, you don't have to worry about avalanches or they'll be buried in an avalanche in about two minutes. Um, on the other hand, this is a movie that comes up to a lot of very cliched kinds of plot twists and then sharply veers away from them, too. It, it, mm-hmm. it kind of willfully does that. But, OK, Rebecca, I'm going to attempt one more Papulian through line, but I can't do it directly to the commissioner. <laughs> you know, the commissioner's here. She'll make a ruling. But so James, I think, says an important thing, which is that this movie takes up important questions. Maybe it doesn't always treat of them uh, as as weightily or as fully as we'd like it to. And I think one of the most important questions, and it's one that's here right now, is to what degree, how do we balance the damage that people come into their adult lives with against their behavior? And, and I'll connect it directly. Like when I hear the stories of Louis C.K. and the things that he does, I always think to myself, I think there's a better than 50 percent chance that he was sexually abused because he does this thing that is so connected to shame in a, in a almost shame-driven way. He's compulsive about it. He's not getting gratification the way that I think people normally think about gratification. Um, so here he is doing this thing. It just seems to me that this is something you would do not if you were a healthy person but if you were really badly damaged by something else. Maybe I'm wrong about this. But – I feel like we're in an environment where people aren't even sure they care, you know, like you did this awful thing. You're an icky person. You're horrible. We don't ever want to see you again. And this movie asks us a different question, which is, well, is there any point in thinking about how people got to be the way they are? Yeah. Well, I mean, just to your point, that whole uh, response Sarah Silverman had about Louis C.K. I love Louis. He's my friend, but he's done awful things. How do I rectify the two? I think this movie asks you to do that with one of the central characters in a way that is uncomfortable for us. Um, But at the same time, do we all want to live our lives where we can't allow somebody to redeem themselves and grow? I mean, I firmly believe in rehabilitating people and not just giving up. But this movie, why I think it's so difficult to come down one way or another is because it kind of forces you to occupy that position as a viewer of the film and and make a judgment yourself that might be different for everyone that you're viewing it with. I saw it with my family, and I would definitely recommend seeing it with a group of people and talking about it after because it will. You'll walk out of the theater and kind of need that conversation immediately following. 
All right. You yeah. need to fill in the gaps. Really. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yes, it is. You have to talk about it. All right. So I'm not even going to get a ruling from the commissioner because I've already been just <laughs> brutally slapped no. once already tonight. And anyway, we do have to take a break. So we will do that and we will come back. Well, this is the point at which uh, usually Kion Wolf uh, hands out some credits and makes some thank yous and stuff. But we're doing this at 8 o'clock at night or now almost 9 o'clock at night, and Kion Wolf is off doing whatever Kion Wolf does. Uh, Jonathan McNichol and I are uh, alone uh, here in the building, but with this fabulous panel, uh, Irene Papoulis and James Handley and Rebecca Castellani. Anyway, thanks very much to uh, to Jonathan McNichol for being willing to stay late and uh, and do this show. Um, I am going to be away uh, next week. We've got a, a group of shows. Shows that we love that you will be hearing. Some of them are from the last six months, but I think the oldest of them is a conversation that I had with Patty Smith in front of a live audience, which is, uh, I think, uh, uh, two Octobers ago. Uh, if you missed that the first time, you definitely want to hear it. I'm not even a big Patty Smith fan, but I- I'm telling you that. All right, so we're going to now recommend some things to you. Uh, we'll go around the table. Uh, let's start with uh, you, Irene Papoulis. Um, okay, I, I just have two books that are sort of vying for, for attention on my bedside table. One of them is Trevor Noah's book called, and they're both great Christmas potential holiday presents for people. You know, so Trevor Noah's book, Born a Crime, I'm reading with my students, and it's just, it's just a wonderful autobiography of when he was, until he was about in his early 20s, about his parents, and you learn a lot. My students are blown away by what they're learning about South Africa and apartheid that they didn't know, but he tells it in such a funny way. It's great. But the other book that I'm reading, I wonder if um, James is going gonna, is gonna to recommend, too, because it's the book that it, it's Collusion. Oh, um, it is so good. The subtitle is um, Secret Meetings, Dirty Money, and How Russia Helped Donald Trump Win yeah. um, by yeah. Luke Harding. And it's just an amazing book. book if you really want to if you really want to f- know the details of the Steele dossier and how they got it and what was going on and all the collusion. You can really find it in that book. And there's some really great sort of creative nonfiction scenes in there, yeah, too. It's, it's, it's a really good book. I agree. I'll co-endorse that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. James, what have you got for um, us? Well, actually, I would say also another book to read from 1951 is Hannah Arendt on the origins of totalitarianism. Mm-hmm. I started reading that again, a really amazing, um, amazing piece and very salutary to, to process it now. The other thing uh, is an orgy of my favorite movies, the masterpiece uh, Blade Runner 2049 at Sydney Studio playing in 4K, digital. It's amazing. I think a masterpiece. Amazing that that film, the original film, could uh, Denis Villeneuve could produce a film that is equal to the original. And the other thing next week is something historic and very rare. We brought in a 70 millimeter film, physical film print of 2001 A Space Odyssey, the Stanley Kubrick film that we will be playing from Sunday through Saturday of next week. It'll be running for seven days. And if you've never seen 2001, it's really amazing. But it's also amazing that it's on 70 millimeter film. Mm, Sounds great. Sounds like a feast for the eyes. Rebecca Castellani. I'm definitely going to go because I've never seen 2001 Space Odyssey, which is a (laughs) sin. Um, I'm going to endorse next Friday or Yes, next Friday, the 8th, is Christmas in Collinsville. Uh, there's a champagne walk, so if you bring your own champagne flute and get a little 
Um, they've got these little rings. You can get a little sh glass of champagne at all the different venues in Collinsville. Um, or if you don't have a glass, you can buy one at any of the various stops along the way. And then at 8 o'clock, we have Broca's Area, which is a really fun future soul band out of Hartford playing at Bridge Street. So that's a really fun night in Collinsville if you're looking to get out to the more quaint side of Connecticut and experience the Collinsville nightlife yeah. next Friday from 6 on. There's lots going on. All right. And that's December 8th. Eight, eight, December okay. 8th. All right. So um, I'm going to recommend a, a brand new podcast. And, and uh, even though there's only been one episode of it so far, I am prepared to recommend it because I think it's – it's worth visiting. It's, it's, it's called Slow Burn. It's produced by the people at Slate. It's about Watergate. Um, and it's to me and to th two of the three people sitting in this room with me, it's kind of funny because uh, the very young narrator of this, whose name is Leon Nathak, uh, begins by saying, I'm going to tell you a story that you've probably never heard before. And then he tells the story of Martha Mitchell. And I'm thinking, well, no, that is a story I know <laughs> really well. But I mean, but in fact, for you know, most of the living Americans right now, that is a, an unusual story and one that you don't necessarily know. And, and the, one of the questions that he asks at the beginning of this podcast is, did the people who lived through Watergate understand what they were living through? Because that's a very relevant question for us right now for reasons having to do with the book that James and Irene just recommended. And, and so I do – I'm going to be teaching uh, this spring and I've already decided that I, I'm going to teach Watergate as part of the, this course I'm teaching on uh, media and politics because I think it's one of the events that reshaped the relationship between the political establishment and the news media. But I mean there's so many other ways in which Watergate is really, really interesting to revisit. And even though I do know the story of Martha Mitchell, there were some things that I had sort of forgotten, some elements of it that uh, had not survived uh, in my memory and also just hearing her voice and some other voices on this podcast made me think, you know, and, and, I, and I've been thinking – I was thinking a lot about Watergate already. I'd gotten Michael Schutzen's great book about Watergate in collective memory out already and been reading through it. So, uh, yes, it's called Slow Burn. You can find it uh, wherever you find podcasts. So our revels are ended uh, and I want to thank uh, once again – from uh, Trinity College, Professor Irene Papoulis, uh, from Trinity Cine Studio, Professor James Handley, uh, and Professor Rebecca Castellani from uh, Bridge Street Live in Montmartre. Well, no, actually Collinsville, but they're very easily confused with one another. <laughs> All right. So uh, on Monday, we'll have a conversation that I had with John McPhee, the incredible writer, uh, and I think you'll enjoy it if you didn't hear it the first time. All the berry, Woodberry, hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah